coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. There are doors opening for Christians and for religious freedom. There's so much good news happening in the Middle East, and yet there are very dangerous developments in Afghanistan, in Iran, and elsewhere. Jesus said, love your enemies. And he also said, love your neighbor. What does it mean in today's Middle East for us to love our neighbor when those neighbors are our enemies? Today on our Inside the Epicenter podcast with Joel Rosenberg, we're going to ask that question. What does it mean when we look at the world today to have enemies and to have allies? Today, I'm joined with our founder, Joel Rosenberg, uh, who is the author of the brand new book, Enemies and Allies, which I'm so excited for us to begin a series of podcasts talking about that. Yes, for those of you watching on YouTube or our website, you can see the book there and uh, should be available now for distribution, uh, depending on the airing date of this podcast. But for Joel and the rest of the Joshua Fund, I'm Carl Muller, the executive director of the Joshua Fund. And we're a ministry that is dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And that leads us directly into our topic today, Joel's book, Enemies and Allies. Joel, I'm so excited to discuss this book with you today and to begin a conversation around this subject I had the privilege of actually reading this book in its galley form a few months ago, and I was struck by just again how insightful it is to the situations that we're facing in terms of the current threats in the Middle East and and the opportunities and the the things that we can go look at for the future. So we're going to we're going to talk about some of those things. You know, before we get into some of the content, I always do this in books. Do you ever do this when you're in a bookstore, Joel? You open up and you say, who's endorsed this book? I mean, you have endorsements there from like Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, ambassadors, current and former CIA director, uh, Vice President Mike Pence. I mean, how gratifying is it for you to actually receive these endorsements on a book that you write? I'm sure it must be really gratifying to see these kind of folks there. Sure. Well, uh, a number of them have become friends over the last uh, 15 or 20 years, and, and some of them are sources in the book. But it is encouraging when you have Middle East experts and various leaders across the political spectrum and in different countries. We have Arab Muslims endorsing the book. We have Israeli Jews uh, endorsing the book. And yeah, that's been it, it's been very encouraging because is there a more controversial or volatile part of the world than the Middle East? And so um, to write a book about our enemies and our allies, a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> and so you're going to have a lot of different views about who these people are. And it's, is that country really an ally? I, I, I don't know. I, and, and you see, you'll yeah. feel those tensions inside the book. I, I'm very honest about how people see that country and that country and that country and but to see so many people, again, across the ideological spectrum, religious spectrum, Jews, Muslims, Christians, uh, Democrats and Republicans, others, say this book is really helpful. Yes. Uh, that's been very encouraging. And I will just say one other thing, just as the outset, I just as an ethical point, my wife and I turned over the copyright uh, mm-hmm. to Enemies and Allies 
to the nonprofit organization called Near East Media that runs all Israel news and all Arab news, the yeah. news and analysis sites that we started. And that Near East Media, that's the overseeing organization, that's a nonprofit, religious, charitable, uh, educational organization. And so one of the things that does is allow this all the profits from the book are going to go help explain and educate what's going on in Israel and the Middle East, and those funds will not be coming to us. So I just say that because often, always in the Joshua Fund, we've never talked about my books because that's a profit venture. I mean, right. it's, I mean, we allude to them sometimes because there's, it's relevant to whatever I'm talking about at any given moment, but we certainly don't promote them. This is right. a, a different moment, though. Well, you know, I have to say thank you for that because this gave us at the Joshua Fund a tremendous opportunity to stand alongside you in this book. And uh, again, like you said, it's not a it's not a sales pitch for us. This is an explanation. And uh, the fact that you've you've done that, you and Lynn have you know signed over the royalties on this book. I want everybody to know that 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 we're in this not for the gain that would come if it was a for-profit venture, but because you've actually made that very strong statement that this is more important than any motivation like that. Um, I want to say one thing about the book to everybody, because I've read it, and at least uh, I've read an earlier version of it, and I think the, the final copy is even more compelling in some ways. But the fact that you can take one of the, if not the most complex areas of the world. I mean, you talked about the uh, the different viewpoints of different regimes in this region uh, on the United States and on the geopolitical moment, and that there are enemies uh, of the West from this group. But you've also uh, very clearly outlined in this book, you know, the complexities that some of these folks are enemies of each other. You know, I mean, there is, there and allies of each other, and that these things are immensely complex, but you have done what I would consider one of the greatest services to the body of Christ in this moment, which is to take this complexity and really drill it through the lens of Scripture to make it much clearer for all of us. Because when we look at the world without the lens of Scripture, it's foggy and diffuse and confusing, and we don't understand the priorities of of these different things. But when we look through Scripture, things tend to get focused. You've done a phenomenal job of bringing this out. So I want to thank you personally. Yeah, no, I appreciate it very much. And I, so I think a couple of things just as we get started in the conversation. Most of the last 18 months, most Americans, certainly American evangelicals and others, have just not been focused on Israel and her neighbors. In an occasional moment, um, you know, the Abraham Accords, we, we had a sense Rocket that war. Israel was making peace with mm-hmm. UAE, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, and Sudan, and Morocco. There was some coverage in the United States about that, but, but you know, but most of the coverage has been about COVID, the health issue, the vaccinations, the controversy over vaccination, should we, shouldn't we, force, not force, churches being closed, the economic shutdowns, the church shutdowns, bitter uh, political campaigns, and so forth. And, and I I think that most Americans, and again, most even juggles in particular, really don't know how much has changed. I describe the COVID life, this 18-month period roughly, there was B.C., <laughs> and there's now, like there's before COVID, yeah. but it's like a, a, another universe because there are sweeping changes going on in the region, in the mm. Middle East, North Africa, and in, in the Arab Muslim world, sweeping tectonic changes of attitudes towards Israel, towards Jews, 
towards Christians. There are doors opening for Christians and for religious freedom. There's so much good news happening in the Middle East, and yet there are very dangerous developments in Afghanistan, in Iran, and elsewhere. And and so you have like these cross currents, like 180 degree opposite, you know, jet streams. And there are two, you know, if you broadly speaking, there's two entirely different forces trying to drive the region one way, mm-hmm. and there are forces trying to drive the region the other way. And where those two forces meet, the risk is you're going to have a storm. Yeah. And I think that while Americans and others around the world have been focused internally on our own issues, understandably, but uh, the Middle East, even right now, even as enemies and allies releases, the Middle East has forced itself back onto the agenda with Afghanistan, with Iran, and with an American administration in Washington trying, you know, to handle it and, and, and setting aside whether you think they're doing a good or bad job. The point is it's forcing – the Middle East is forcing itself on an administration that said from the beginning explicitly that's not going to be our focus. Yeah. We're not <laughs> we're not going to focus on the Middle East like the previous administrations, yeah. both Democrat and Republican, have. Yeah. But the Middle East is not allowing that. <laughs> that's and, right. Uh, and so right. we all know we have to understand what is happening. And this is the first book that is releasing in this season that tells the story. There are multiple stories, but tells the stories of what is the Abraham Accords? Are they good? Are they bad? How did they come about? Right. And what are the threats right now? And the most important thing about this book is, I mean, a person could just observe from a distance, but – one of the things I hope that we'll talk about in this podcast and then the ones to come, uh, the Lord opened crazy doors yeah. for me to go sit in the Oval Office, to sit with kings, yeah. princes, presidents, prime ministers. And you're going to hear the conversations we had with these leaders wow. as we asked, for example, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, how come you don't have a single church <laughs> operating in your country? Yeah. Next door in the United Arab Emirates, there are 700 freely operating churches. You don't have a single one, and yet there are 1.4 million Christians who live and work as foreign nationals in Saudi Arabia. Could we talk about this? You you asked him if he had a church in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Again, whether you love these leaders or hate them, these are the decision makers. These are the people that are creating change on the ground for good or bad, and there are multiple biographies that have come out in the last few years, Carl, about just the person we're talking about, the Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. Admittedly, the most controversial leader in the Middle East on the allies or presumed ally side, not a single book by the Wall Street Journal, by the New York Times, by a former CIA official, none of those authors had ever met MBS, much less interviewed him on the record And I had those opportunities. And that's just one example of the type of hard questions, candid questions, candid conversations that we had. And it's the only book of its kind. Incredible. Yeah, it is absolutely staggering. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago about your books, and they said, you know, Joel has a unique way of taking facts that are readily available to everyone, but bringing them into a close relationship with each other and actually looking at the future so much so that it actually makes the future seem inevitable. 
and then when it comes to play, it's, it's, you know, we think Joel is some sort of like modern day prophet, but you're not, you're just assembling the conversations and the facts together. And what I love about this book, and we're going to talk about the threats that some of these leaders identify themselves to the situations of the world right now. But you know, what I love is that you actually bring us into those conversations and they are, um, as you said, unique out there, but they're available and those perspectives are available, but you bring all of those positions together. And that's what I want, want our listeners to get a little uh, glimpse into, which is if we open our eyes and if we spend some time just sitting and thinking about this, and you know, my old phrase from Brother Andrew was, you know, read the newspaper on one hand and have the Bible open on the other so that you can see where these things connect and intersect. I think this is a remarkable time. Well, the, the Jesus, of course, commands us to analyze this present age, of course, from a biblical worldview, um, to understand what is God doing and what is the enemy doing and what's the church supposed to be doing? Yes. In fact, Jesus doesn't just command us that we do it. He he actually castigated his disciples for not doing it. He says, you hypocrites, you know, you you watch the weather channel. Well, he didn't say it that way. He, but he's, you know, he's saying you you look at the sky and you know whether it's going to be hot tomorrow or it's going to rain tomorrow. You you, yeah. you you analyze the earth and the sky as though we would, you know, the modern era would be. You watch the Weather Channel. You're really interested. <laughs> you spend hours with all the Doppler radar and all the, you know, and you try to understand what's, you know, should I, you know, bring a raincoat tomorrow or not, you know, <laughs> and uh, why do you not analyze this present time? And and yeah. and this tells us, you know. This is something important. Uh, that's the New Testament way of saying it. The Old Testament way, Ezekiel 33, uh, God appoints watchmen on the walls. He's saying, right. you know, just like in the old days, people would stand on the city walls and they would watch. And if there was an army coming, they'd blow a trumpet and they'd tell everybody, hey, a, a threat is coming. Yeah. Get ready. Be prepared. And by the same token, God wants us to be aware of what's happening. But in the information age... As you say, a lot of this information is readily accessible. Now, a lot in my book is unique because I got to sit down and hear it from the, you know, from the horse's mouth, as it were. I got to, so that is unique. But a lot of it is knowable. But the question is, what does it mean? Right. One of the things I think we're trying to do at the Joshua Fund, we have multiple functions, right? Multiple objectives, uh, missions. But one of them is to educate people particularly the church, but, yep. you know, we want other people to be educated too. But particularly people who love Jesus and are like, I don't have the time or the expertise to understand not only what's happening in the Middle East, but what does it mean and mm-hmm. why does it matter and how should it affect my prayer life, how should it affect my giving, my service. And that's the body of Christ. You know, there are people who are, you know, doctors. I, I Nobody comes to me when they – are about to have a heart attack or if they're having, you know, a problem with their knees, they're like, yeah. well, Rosenberg, you're probably a doctor, you know? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. So I'm not going to be helpful. And so the body helps each other. My niche, part of the Joshua niche is to be a trusted resource to help people sift through what's going on and try to understand it and understand it from a biblical perspective. It's right. not the only thing that Joshua does. Obviously, we we fund ministries on the ground in these countries, strengthen the church in a very volatile and troubled region, yeah. etc. There's a number of missions we have, but the education side is important, and that's really my main area of, uh, of focus. 
and in a book like Enemies and Allies, it gives me an opportunity to go even beyond a podcast, beyond my daily column or whatever in on my websites, but to say, let's take unique information and, and frame it so whether people read it, either as a book, a hardcover, or an ebook, or just download it to their phone and let someone else read it while they're driving to the grocery store, or, you know, or dropping their kids off for school, just to let someone read it to them, right? To absorb and say, what ought I know that I don't? Right. You know, Joel, I was talking uh, with our producer Steve Ryder a little bit earlier during a break, and um, he used to work for uh, Jim Dobson, Focus on the Family and Family Talk, and one of the things he said, Doctor Dobson called you he said every time he talked to you he said you were like a one of the men of issachar who understood the times the bible says and knew what to do so i'm going to ask you when we get back we're going to take a quick break here when i get back what are the times that we live in right now through the lens of these unique conversations that you've had with these leaders and what do you write about in enemies and allies about that so here we go let's take a break Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. There is nothing more powerful than prayer. We serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. So if you would, take a moment right now and pray for our many partners across the epicenter. Many of them regularly face persecution, harassment, and many, many difficulties. And your prayer could make a tremendous difference in the war against evils that face them. We know how the story ends. Let's pray to that end together. Joel, I was struck when I read your new book, Enemies and Allies, by just the transparent nature of your conversations in the palaces and the embassies and the consulates of these Middle Eastern countries uh, that, you know, many of us used to think of as enemies, both of the United States and of Israel. Very unclear, very confusing, but many of them came into these Abraham peace accords with Israel and that were brokered by the, the Trump administration uh, a little over a year ago. And now we're, tw- you know, we're just past the anniversary of 9-11, 20 years of that. And we're at an incredibly complex and confusing moment when it comes into the Middle East, but whether it's Afghanistan or if it's Iran or if it's Saudi Arabia or if it's any one of the neighboring countries to Israel and Israel itself. I want to ask you, Joel, what are some of the threats that these leaders in the Middle East see from your conversations with them right now? To the globe, to the world, maybe to the region, but but really, as you you love to say, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. So, what do they see as the biggest threats out there on the horizons? Yeah, well, those are the direct questions we would ask, and uh, uh, it's interesting. I've had now um, five meetings with uh, Jordan's King Abdullah II, four meetings, and then sort of a, a quick get together for a fifth, uh, with Egyptian president, uh, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, um, two meetings, uh, of two hours each with the crown prince and future heir to the throne of Saudi Arabia. And then, um, a single meeting, but it was two hours long with the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates and meetings with the senior leadership of Bahrain, though our delegation to Bahrain has twice been, um, postponed because of COVID. But in every case, we ask them, what worries you? What keeps you up? What, what are the threats as you see them? And of course, also with the prime minister of Israel, the president of Israel, I, I interviewed both of them and, and the president of the United States and the vice president and secretary of state and the national security advisor. It's all in the book. But wow. 
there's two answers and they're part of a Venn diagram. The main answer is radical Islamism, meaning there's a whole range of organizations, terrorist organizations and terror states that worry these leaders deeply uh, from the regime in Iran, obviously, and, and then um, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, mm. Hezbollah, uh, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. These are names that are familiar to many of us over 20 years, even though most mm. of us didn't want to be familiar. I did because I, this is interesting to me, but most Christians, most Americans, I don't want to know about all these terror groups and states. So the overall movement of people who are Muslims, but they're out of the mainstream of Islam. We talked about this in a previous podcast, that in the world of 1.8 billion Muslims, there's enormous amounts of research, social science uh, studies, polling that shows about 90% of Muslims. They do not believe, in fact, they're diametrically opposed to using violence to accomplish political or religious objectives. So 90% of the Muslim world like is like, that's crazy. Anybody who's using suicide bombings or flying a plane into a building or, or starting a war or, you know, whatever. It's wrong. It's bad. It's, you know, so that's, we're happy about that, 90%. But unfortunately, between 7 and 10% of Muslims, depending on the way you ask that question, but consistently say, no, I do support that. I think there are moments, there are places, there are occasions where we should use violence to achieve our objective and advance our cause. So that's a problem because in a world of 1.8 billion, Muslims 10% is 180 million people. Man. So if you ask the president of Egypt, the king of Jordan, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates, the leaders of Bahrain, and certainly the leaders of Israel, and at least some leaders in the United States, it's a bit divided, they would say radical Islamism the mm. movement that says let's use violence to achieve our objectives, mm. this is the most dangerous force. And it's even more dangerous because it takes multiple forms. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So uh, it's not new to Islam and it's not new to the Middle East, but in the age of technology, weaponry, and digital communications, secure communications, they're able to talk to each other, find each other, these jihadists, and these people who want to wage holy war or jihad, they can find each other. They can encourage each other. They can direct each other. They can arm each other, fund each other yeah. in ways that weren't possible 50 years ago, 100 yeah. years ago, 500 even, years ago. Even 10 or 20 years ago, we didn't have Bitcoin and, and exchanges that are, you know, of, of currency between these terrorist groups that could take place anonymously. And doesn't, That's right. And you know, even though the U.S., for example, has the National Security Administration and we can tap phones and listen to satellite conversations and all the different high-tech surveillance, sometimes these groups go to using global video gaming and in the chat rooms of the video games, wow. which are not really interceptable, Wow. Uh, they're playing, uh, you know, Medal of Call Honor. Of Duty. Or, they're playing you know, Call, of Call of Duty. Duty or whatever, or just something that seems more innocuous. Wow. And they're talking to each other and they're planning. Or they're going old school and they're not using phones, they're using couriers. Mm -hmm. So in the big picture, that's their number one threat. And mostly these are non-state actors. You know, Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, Hezbollah, Taliban. Taliban now has taken over state, the state of Afghanistan. That's the problem. But in many ways, these are grassroots organizations. They're not wearing 
military uniforms. They don't drive tanks. They don't fly <laughs> fighter jets that you can identify. They wear the local clothing yeah. and then they can blow up a market or whatever yeah. and you don't see them coming. The second one is is specifically the Islamic Republic and the regime in Iran. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Iran that. Iran is yeah. such a a sophisticated country, a technologically advanced country compared to Afghanistan, for example, or Sudan or, or, or Libya. Iran has natural gas. It has oil. Therefore, it has wealth. And even with sanctions, it still can secretly sell oil and gas to people who will buy it and use that money. And what are they using? You've got a radical, I would say apocalyptic regime. They don't want to just use violence to achieve an objective. They believe that if they commit genocide against Jews and Christians, that they can bring about the end of the world, or the end of days as part of their end times theology or eschatology. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Iran, with its unique type of leadership, its industrial base, its enormous wealth, and its passion and commitment to get nuclear weapons, and how far they've come and how close they are, this is the number one threat. And when you add Iran to the alliances it's making with other nuclear powers, like Russia, China, North Korea, even as... We're going to talk about that. This is where, when you start reading this first section of Enemies and Allies about the enemies... You start hearing these leaders in the region say, this is why we're scared. This is what worries us. And boy, the world better unify to stop it. But right now, most leaders in the Middle East do not feel the world is unified. Joel, can I ask you, give us some insight into what those leaders that you met with talked about. How did they view, like, say, the U.S.'s deal with Iran under the Obama administration? What was their feeling about that direction and where they see things now? Well, that's a really interesting question, Carl, because one of my chapters, I begin with, I'm sitting in the joint session of Congress in 2015 when then Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is about to address the American political system and the nation and the world on this exact question of the Iran deal. And it was so dramatic because... Israel is a country, of which I'm a citizen, of less than 10 million people, okay? We're a small country, but Netanyahu came into the capital of the world's only superpower to say, we respect you, but we totally disagree with where you're going. This nuclear deal doesn't prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. It paves the pathway to get there. It may delay them for a little bit, but it literally allows them to build and retain the infrastructure. And when the deal wraps up, because it has all these sunset provisions, they'll just walk into nuclear weapons, not just one, but an arsenal. So he makes the case, and I describe what it was like, the mood, the tone. But also, just as a funny note, Carl, one of the funny things in the book is I'm sitting there in the the gallery with you know people I'm, you know not a member of Congress or anything obviously, uh, but a, a friend of mine who was a member of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, a member of Congress, he had got he gave me a ticket because he he enjoyed my books and was fascinated with my perspective. Anyway, I'm sitting there, I'm listening to Netanyahu, and this guy next to me who I don't know keeps ribbing me during the speech and going, "This is crazy." Have you ever read books by that guy named Joel Rosenberg? It sounds just <laughs> it. 
Netanyahu is like it's like it, these are like pages ripped right out of of one of this guy. You got to read these books. Like, <laughs> and I, I at first I thought he was kidding, and then I thought this is weird. And I I literally write in the book. I had this fear that Netanyahu was going to he- hear this guy and just stop and say, "Would you like me to wait? Should I just take a moment? Are you two finished?" And I thought, "Oh my gosh!" The whole, all the cameras would turn. Anyway, the guy did re- recognize re- wow. afterwards, uh, but that's from the Israeli perspective. What was really interesting, Carl, is in the chapters that follow that. Oh, and also, I, I talked to Netanyahu on the record, and, mm-hmm. and you see this interview. Where he explains the difference between radical Islam bad yeah. and apocalyptic islam and he's one of the few leaders in the region or in the world that really understands what we're dealing with in tehran that's that leadership that's not like any other leadership in the world yeah. it's the only government in the world that's driven by eschatology wow. end times theology and in this case genocidal they're getting ready to commit genocide against yeah. all of israel and against the united states and christendom now that's israel's perspective but I won't go into the details because my answer is too long already. But I will say when you sit with every single Arab leader, they agree with Netanyahu on this mm. issue. They said – Wow. In fact, one very senior uh, – and it's on the record, but very senior um, Arab officials told me when we found out that the Obama – Biden administration was having secret negotiations with the Iranian regime – it was like our wife was cheating on us. We just found this out. Wow. We might have understood if they told us, we want to see if there's any way that these guys might be willing to. But they just did it without us. And we felt that it's it's our security. It's you, live half, you live half a world away. We live right from Dubai. You, if you can't literally see Iran. But you are that's the last frontier before you cross the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, according to the Arabs. And you get to Iran. So if there's a war, who's on the front lines? Every single Arab leader told me they felt betrayed. They were horrified. Sometimes they didn't say that in public, but they said it to me. Wow. I want to stay on Iran for a little bit because when we're talking about threats in the Middle East, when you have both Israeli and Middle Eastern Arab leaders identifying Iran as one of the key threats, that's got to be the key threat. The key threat. Okay, yeah, the key I mean, threat. The other one is important. <laughs> what are but what are, an existential threat? Like, yeah. you could just wipe out our country. Yeah. That's Iran, not not the Muslim Brotherhood or or Hamas or whatever. It's fascinating. Most Americans wouldn't picture that alignment um, between right. those ideals, and 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 the feeling of betrayal must have been immense. But what are some of the things that Iran is doing right now in the background? that is causing such a focus on them as the, I would say, to use an old phrase, part of the axis of evil (laughs) in the region. You know, that is a real thing. Yeah. Well, the main thing is that Iran has been and continues to break the very deal that Mm. they made uh, with the Western powers. It wasn't just the United States, right? You know, President Obama felt that the Iranians needed an on-ramp back onto the highway of international respectability and friendship and commerce and so forth. He felt that they were sort of misunderstood and, yeah, we don't agree with them on a lot of things, but, okay, enough of the sanctions, and enough, let's give them a way back, okay? Rodney now, King strategy. <laughs> well, you know, look, I try to deal with President Obama and, and Vice Pre- then Vice President Biden's view fairly mm. because it's not a – minority view like our european allies felt the same way 
But that's why I contrast it with Netanyahu, because Netanyahu says, when you understand the nature of this unique regime in Iran, when you really read what they say and they believe, this idea that they're trying to bring about the end of the world as we know it, you realize they're not looking for an on-ramp. But they'll take it if you want to give them $150 billion in cash and release them from certain sanctions so they can sell more oil and gas, they'll be happy to talk, have, you know, sit lattes or drink tea with you in Vienna or wherever and, you know, forever if it helps them advance their cause. So people can look and see, well, do I agree with Netanyahu's assessment or do I agree with President Obama's or obviously President Trump didn't agree with it. So he withdrew the U.S. But remember, uh, the coalition of countries that made that deal with Iran is called the P5 plus one, meaning there were five countries plus the UN that were involved in this. Mm. And only one country, the United States, withdrew. Mm. That means the rest of the countries said, no, the deal is still operative. Mm. But Iran was betraying and violating it before the U.S. pulled out and continues to violate it. So wow. bottom line is, the process of, of enriching uranium to get it to be pure enough that you can create a nuclear weapon, a military-grade bomb, you know, to mm-hmm. kill people, that's, you have to get that to about 90%, 93% purity. Currently, Iran has blown past, you know, you, in the deal, you're only supposed to be able to uh, enrich to 3.5%. Mm. Currently, they're enriching at 60%. So you realize how closer and closer and closer Iran is getting. Uh, I think it's remarkable and it's absolutely chilling to think that in the middle of this cauldron of fractured relationships and everything, Iran is working behind the scenes, agitating, continuing to build on this nuclear policy. And most of the world, apart from the leaders that you actually sat down with in the region, are oblivious to it. I mean, we, we, we just move on with other things in so many of these ways. Well, they don't feel but threatened we, by it, Carl. That's one of the biggest problems. And this is the, the is point the Arabs are making and that the Israelis are making. Right. It's like, look, if you're living in Switzerland or you're in Europe or, 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 or in Asia or Central South America, we understand that you don't seem to care that much. You don't seem to think, ah, it's not a big deal. Either you misunderstand the, the, the intention of the regime which means you're at risk of being blindsided by it. If you misread it and you're wrong and we're right, bad things are going to happen. But also they're not targeting you. Right. So when they say they're going to wipe Israel off the map, Israeli leaders, you know, I I, I met with the defense minister on the record, Benny Gantz. uh, Mm. He's the son of Holocaust survivors. He says, when I hear an Iranian leader say he's going to wipe my country off the map, to me that says second Holocaust. Yes. I believe them. I can't afford to think, well, he's just saying that. It's just rhetoric. No, no, no. My family barely survived a leader who said, I'm going to kill all the Jews. Nobody took it seriously. And then they killed six million people. Like, I can't. I'm the defense minister. It's my responsibility to be ready. And one of the things that's happening, uh, Carl, is that Israelis are feeling very isolated. And particularly with the um, Western abandonment of our ally in Afghanistan and allowing Afghanistan to just fall into the hands of a terrorist regime, the Taliban, this is adding to the fear 
in Israel, forget the Arab world for a minute, forget the rest of the world, in Israel, that if we don't really believe that the U.S. has will stop Iran That's right. or help us, we might have to go do it ourselves. This right. means the potential of a massive war. Yeah. And if that weren't bad enough, I'll just say one other thing. It's not just Iran might build nuclear weapons in the next couple of years. They're funding terrorist organizations that are killing Americans and killing Israelis and killing Arabs and others right now. Yes. This is not some theoretical one, someday. These terrorist organizations are being funded, armed, trained, encouraged, and at times even directed by the Iranian regime, which means it's today's issue. Uh, tankers, uh, oil tankers and shipping uh, tankers, uh, ships in the Gulf are being captured and tell, held hostage by Iran. Iranian-backed rebels and terrorists in Yemen are shooting hundreds of missiles into our ally, Saudi Arabia. In Gaza, 4,500 rockets and missiles got fired at Israel in May where did these? Where, where do they come from? Coming from? Where's the mm-hmm. the technology? It's coming from Iran. So, so I mean, multiple, it's it, multiple dangers. Yeah, you are you are pointing out something that I think again is available to all of us. But again, bringing these ideas together in this unique way really simplifies some of the things that are happening right now and gives us some really profound insights. So we've talked about so far the radical Islamist groups around the region. We've talked about the apocalyptic state of Iran and it's uh, pursuing an eschatological policy around the globe. And, you know, uh, much the way Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, you just have to go on YouTube and see the speeches of the Ayatollahs and the speeches that call for the destruction of both uh, Israel and the United States. And um, again, we ignore those threats to our peril. Yeah. Uh, but there's another threat, and I think you've talked about it in numerous other places, about an axis, an alliance between Iran and Russia and Turkey, potentially creating you know, another axis uh, what's happening there, and what is the biblical message around that threat in the Middle East? Wow. Okay. So, yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, one of the things I found intriguing in the research as I was talking to, you know, sometimes on the record, sometimes on what's called deep background, meaning I'd talk to a spy chief in a country or a former spy chief, and they'd say, listen, I'll tell you what I know but you can't quote me by name. You can quote what I'm saying, but you can't say that I said it. And, and uh, sure. we don't always like to do that. And, and that's why most of what you'll read in this book is on the record. If they said it, they said it. And then they have to stand by it. But, you know, spy chiefs and these type of people, you know, they, they live in the shadows. Many of them, not all, but many of them, Carl, says to, say to me, what worries us about Iran on top of everything we just talked about, is that Iran has been so thwarted by the United States and by Israel, by our intelligence services uh, in clandestine operations. Uh, nuclear facilities have mysterious explosions or fires. Equipment that they Iran purchases get damaged. Uh, uh, Iranian nuclear scientists uh, and missile engineers suddenly die and mysteriously. And so a lot of things have happened over the last 20 years or so. And therefore, that's why Iran doesn't yet have the bomb. People have been warning, oh, they're just a couple years away. Well, are they just joking? Are they lying? Well, no, they were a couple years away and then things happened. But 
what these growing number of intelligence and, and, and other type of officials are telling me, and I explain it in the book, is what we're watching is because Iran is not yet able to get into the end zone, as it were, <laughs> to get the very nuclear warheads that they want, to put on the high-speed missiles they already have, mm-hmm. they're turning to countries to build alliances with very dangerous enemies of the United States and the West. The main one is there, Iran is building a, a strategic alliance with Russia, mm-hmm. which already has nuclear warheads and has intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? And who has, in my view, a mafia boss running the country, Vladimir Putin. Uh, I go into analyzing who is Putin in the book, and that's a little off of our game here, but the point is the reason Putin's important in a book about the Middle East is because he's funding, encouraging, assisting, arming Iran. Yeah. So we have to understand why is he doing that? Now, personally, I believe... Uh, without getting into all of it, it, just to signal that that's in the book, I don't think Putin thinks that Iran is going to pull him into a problem. I think he thinks he's managing the, the problem. Yeah. Right? Any, Who's any, using uh, who? Any <laughs> consultant will tell you, oh, there's problems to be managed, and there's, I mean, there's a problem to solve, and there's tensions to manage. Right. I think he thinks he's managing the tensions, but that he's not worried that Iran is going to take all this weaponry and technology and money and encouragement and political support and go pull Russia into a conflagration in the Middle East. But that's a risk. What if Putin miscalculates? Mm. Right? But, but but Iran's leadership is also building close alliances with North Korea, with nuclear-armed China, and with Turkey. Now, Turkey is particularly crazy. I love Turkey. I, I, I spent a lot of time on Turkey in the book. I sort of sketch out the rise of the current leader, mm-hmm. Recep Erdogan. Turkey is a beautiful country. It's a historic country. It's a rich in history and many other ways, a cultural country. Uh, much of the focus of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time in what was called Asia Minor, Turkey, mm-hmm. planting churches, preaching the gospel. And Turkey was the seat of the regional Islamic empire known as uh, a caliphate. The, net, the last caliph. For, <laughs> yeah. yeah, six, seven hundred years. Yeah. And then that all fell apart in around 1921 or so after the British and Americans won World War I and the Ottoman Empire was defeated. And then in the next few years, the whole thing collapsed. What emerged out of that was a modern, pro-Western, pro-American, open country, to open to Jews, open to Christians, open to Muslims of different backgrounds, other people – a modern, progressive, interesting country. Um, for a hundred years, Turkey became the model that you can have a really moderate, wonderful ally as a Muslim country. They're not Arabs; they're Turkish, uh, and the Turkish Turkic people are a unique ethnic group. But the point is, they were the model. They're part of NATO. We position nuclear weapons used to be aimed at the Soviet Union on. Turkish soil. But under the rise of this man, Recep Erdogan, everything's changing. Mm-hmm. Erdogan was a secret Islamist, meaning he wants to use Islam to advance political and religious objectives. And he's been turning the country. First, he was secret. Then he came out of the closet, as it were. And he has become an enemy 
of most of the people of the Middle East and an ally of the jihadists. Mm-hmm. And many jihad organizations have their headquarters or or subsidiaries in Turkey. And Erdogan seems to want to be the sultan, the, the king, as it were, of the radicals in the region. So that's all bad. And I deal with it in the first part of the book just in terms of pure what's really happening and what are the experts saying. And I interview people that know Erdogan. You've met with him, uh, former CIA director. What were conversations like? Uh, former head of Israeli military intelligence. You were in the room with him. What it, you know, it's very interesting. Later in the book, I deal with what do Christians say about the future of the region? Specifically, what does the Bible say? Yeah. And the very short version is there is a prophecy that I've written about, spoken about, sometimes at Joshua Fund conferences, called the War of Gog and Magog. And not everybody has this interpretation, but I do, and I detail it in, in previous books, that the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39 indicate that Iran is going to form alliance with Russia, Turkey, Libya, and a number of other countries in the last days of history Mm. and will eventually come and surround Israel and try to consume and destroy and absorb and conquer Israel. Mm. The Bible shows that God will supernaturally intervene to defend Israel in a way that we really haven't seen in all of human history, maybe since you know, the exodus of the Jews out of Egypt, uh, yeah. the great showdown, right, between uh, Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston <laughs> um, in, the, in the Ten Commandments. But, like, we like that's a prophecy that's 2,600 years old. It's never come to pass, but it will. Mm-hmm. And what one of the interesting questions, and I deal with it, again, in a separate part of the book, I deal with it just geopolitically up front, but later I come back and I say, you know, Christians do have a view. Jews do, and Muslims do as well. The War of Gog and Magog is part of all of our texts. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Quran and some of the extra Quranic texts. Fascinating. Jews look at it from Ezekiel. We look at it in Ezekiel. But the point is, is it possible that we're beginning to see some of the chess pieces being positioned for this showdown that is truly is apocalyptic in the Bible? Look, you and I can't know at this stage whether we're there or close, but but it is interesting when you look at what's really happening and then you look at what the Bible says will happen one day and you think, I'm trying to analyze it. I'm not sure you can draw a conclusion yet, but it's very, very interesting and sobering, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And And I honestly can't think of any resource better to kind of get our minds and and hearts around some of these things than your new book, Enemies and Allies. And um, uh, we're going to leave that here for now uh, because we've talked about some of these threats. We've talked about the way in which God is is allowing some of these threats, both the United States and Israel and all of the humanity, so to speak. But there's another side to the story. There are some opportunities that God is also doing in these conversations that you've had and the things that are happening. You know, we at the Joshua Fund are seeing opportunities for the good news of Jesus to be more widely uh, embraced and accepted because 
God is on the move and he's doing some things in this region. And, and I, and I know you're one of those like me that doesn't like to leave people at a place of hopelessness. So, um, you know, so many threats, so much volatility, so many things moving towards uh, a biblical culmination. I just want to say, um, we also have a hope. We are the ones that, that have the, the greatest hope of all that God is in control and he's on the throne. And yet, I'm so happy that you've been able to have these conversations to gain us and give us some real insight, Joel. So I want to thank you personally and uh, for, on behalf of all of our listeners for taking us in this first part of this journey. We're going to have a few more parts to this conversation around enemies and allies. But uh, any last thing you want to just share with us on on the book and on this uh, situation and maybe maybe just a little bit about the hope that's in, in front of us as well as the the threats? Sure. Well... Well, one thing is the subhead uh, or, the, or the subtitle for the book, um, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. It is a fascinating journey. It's an unforgettable journey. Um, and I try to tell it in a way that, yes, we start with the bad news, but we also start looking at the good news. And that's, you know, I, I think we started at the beginning with there are, there are cross-currents. There is one movement of uh, uh, in the Middle East right now that's very dark, very mm-hmm. dangerous. Uh, you know, our worst enemies on the planet are starting to form this alliance, and it's largely centered around Iran. And it's just ghastly dangerous. I mean, it, we just have to be honest about it, right? It, it, we dare not stick our heads in the sand and say, I don't want to see it. I don't want – you know, I see no evil. I hear no evil. No. I speak no evil. You can't just binge watch Netflix. You have to understand what the threats are, right? Yeah. But I couldn't write just write that book because there's this other movement, and we're going to get to that in the next um, uh, podcast. But there's a movement where Arab leaders, because of the Iran threat in part, mm-hmm. are saying, listen, we're starting to be worried that the United States is abandoning the region. It's retreating. It's pulling back. People are tired of what's going on over here. We get it, but – that means we're on our own. And if Iran is, and, and these other countries are forming an alliance, we need to form an alliance. And they're looking at Israel differently. Israel wow. used to be the enemy. Now they're thinking, why are they the enemy? Yes, they haven't made peace with the Palestinians, but the Palestinians seem to reject every peace treaty and plan that's offered. Maybe it's not Israel's fault only. Not only. It's partly their fault, they, the Arabs believe. But and by the way, who if we can't trust the Americans to help us in a war with Iran, who could we trust? Well, the Israelis have the strongest air force in the region. They have submarines parked right off the coast of Iran with missiles that could just destroy Iran if they had to, right? They have this great intelligence service and this, you know, maybe we ought to tie with them. And there Israel's a growing technological power and Maybe we need that for a part. So my point is the threat is changing attitudes. That's just one part of it. But that's why we're seeing four Arab-Israeli peace treaties in just a few months when we had seen only two over 75 years. Yeah, Something very positive is happening. And these Arab countries are starting to say, you know what? We don't agree with the Christians theologically, but – Maybe we ought to open ourselves up and have a dialogue with them. Right. Let's invite the Pope. Let's invite 
this guy, Joel Rosenberg, he seems to be interested in Arabs. Let's invite him to bring some Christian leaders to sit with us and talk. We were the first group of Christian leaders in the history of Saudi Arabia. (laughs) 300 years of the Saud family controlling the Arabian Peninsula, most of it. They told us, you're the first Christian leaders in 300 years to be invited into the palace. Wow. Why me? Why a Jewish evangelical U.S. Israeli citizen with two of my four sons who've served in the Israeli army? Why? Well, we, I tell you in the book, yeah. we, we, we talk about it. So there's things that are so encouraging. I see the church growing in the Middle East. Yeah, it's embattled, but God's spirit is moving so powerfully. And I see what the, the effect of the Joshua Fund to pray and to financially support and encourage and just sit with brothers and sisters and say, how can we help you? How can we learn from you? So there's such good things happening. Yeah. And there's such dark things happening. Um, if you tell one story alone, you're not you might you're be telling the whole story, saying, but you're not giving people the full picture. And right. Enemies and Allies really is the first book, the only book that does that and is up to the minute. Well, I can't wait to take our listeners through the rest of the book through the next podcasts that we're going to be doing. And I really want to thank you personally and, and just for your faithfulness to, you know, pursue what, what God has put on your heart to do. And, and thank you also um, for allowing the Joshua fund and founding the Joshua fund and putting us in such a position to where we can be critical to this mission of blessing Israel and these neighboring countries, to educating the church in the West and to educating all of our listeners on this podcast to these situations. So thank you, brother. And I want to thank our listeners as well. Uh, If you found this podcast valuable, if you like what we're talking about, or if you're interested in what we're talking about, please get in touch with us. Uh, let us know who you are and what you're thinking about when it comes to this uh, volatile region, the epicenter of the world. Do you have a question that you want Joel or I to answer? Uh, go to joshuafund.com and click on contact us. That's where you can give us feedback on who you are and on what we're talking about and things that are uh, important to you for us to address. And as always, Check out our show notes, uh, which are found at the bottom of this uh, podcast uh, site. You know, everything that you've heard today, we try to get podcast notes in there so that you can uh, follow up and be fully informed. That's one of our missions to educate and to engage uh, men and women around the world on these issues. So, uh, Joel, once again, thank you. Uh, And to our listeners, uh, (laughs) to our listeners, For Joel Rosenberg and the rest of the Joshua Fund team here, I'm Carl Muller. Thank you for listening to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. Hey, everybody. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And we're hosts of the Kynos Project podcast where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. The word kainos means new, and that's exactly what we want to do on our podcast. Bring something new from what is old in our faith. And on this show, you might hear us explore topics like what the Bible has to say about student loan forgiveness, discuss how the satanic temple affects our view of religious liberty in America, or even question why is it that so many people are having rapture anxiety. To learn more about the podcast, go to lifeaudio.com.